Let me uh, pray and then we'll get started. Father, we come to you this morning and as men, we, we come to you acknowledging that we need you. And that's hard sometimes, Father, to admit that we need anything. Uh, but Father, we do need you. We need you to guide us. We need you to direct us. We need you to empower us. And Father, we, uh, we lift up another one of our men today who needs you. Um, we lift up Mark Peterson and just pray that you would encourage him right now as he is wrestling with um, the possibility of losing his mom, who he loves very much. We thank you, Father, that she knows you and that she is your child. And we just pray, Father, for your will to be done in her life. We pray selfishly, Father, for her healing. But, Father, we, uh, we don't know the outcome. We don't know what's going to happen. But we pray that you would give her peace. We pray that you would be with his dad, that you would comfort him and encourage him and be with the doctors as they attempt to minister to her, Father. And just encourage the family and, uh, Lord, uh, strengthen them and give them peace in the midst of this storm they're going through right now. And show us how that we can be an encouragement to him uh, in the days ahead. Lord, we lift up this uh, morning to you. We pray that you would be glorified and honored by everything that we say and do. And, Lord, that you would take this lesson and that you would apply it to our lives in a way that only you can. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, well, this is week two, and we're going to be talking about repentance. And I couldn't help but get out of my mind the, the, the image of the, uh, the guy with the long beard walking with the repent sign. And I ran across this cartoon this week, which I thought was funny. Um, I, th- I thought it was funny. You might not think it's funny. But that image is one that I typically think of when I think of repentance. It's the guy with the long beard, the disheveled clothes, walking down the street, the repent, you know, the end is near. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about this morning. I'm not talking about the end times. And this, this is going to be an interesting study this morning for a number of, of reasons. Um, probably the main one is I, I really struggled with this one um, to the point of I didn't finish it until 2.30 this morning. And, and it... It was one where I, I went back and forth. I was talking to uh, Doug Cecil yesterday about it at the end of the day, and I was just like, have you ever prepared a lesson, and then when you got it done, you just felt like, this isn't it, this isn't, and he goes, oh, yeah, all, all the time. And I, and I thought, you know, I just don't think this is what God wants shared, but I don't know exactly what he wants shared. So I wrestled with it and, and literally was up until 2.30, finalizing what I feel like God wants me to share. At 2.30 in the morning, I'm not really sure what I'm thinking, so it, you know, it's going to be real interesting to see what comes up on the screen. But I wanted to make sure that this issue of repentance was one that you could relate to, because when we think of repentance, when I think of repentance, I tend to think of um, turning away from sin, uh, walking away. You know, here's the definitions I've always heard. You know, repentance is making a 180-degree turn. You're walking one way, and you repent, you turn 180 degrees and start going the other way. And that's not necessarily a bad definition, but I don't think it's a complete definition. And so this morning, I want us to take a deeper look at this and apply it to our lives as men. And I'm making an assumption, and I know this is a dangerous assumption. I'm assuming that most of the men, if not all of the men in this room, already have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So what kind of repentance do we need to talk about? Uh, Hopefully not a saving repentance, 
but we still need to repent on a daily basis. So with that in mind, here's where we're going to go. What was one of the first commands Jesus gave? Remember, we're looking at the commands of Jesus. This is the first one on the list. And what, what do you think it might have been? Come on, everybody's smart enough. Repent. Okay, good. Good. Wake up. Look at Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is right after he came out of the wilderness experience. This is after, well, this is actually before his baptism. Uh, But he's, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who else had that message? John the Baptist. He's picking it up where John left off. We see in Mark chapter 1, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we're going to pick up that second part of that, believe, next week. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? That's a command. What does that mean for us today? Well, I've already done that. Well, you're not done doing that. It's not a one-time thing you do, so we're going to take that up next week. But what this issue of repenting, it was the first command he gave, but it's interesting that it's also the last command he gave. Let's look at that. Luke chapter 24. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. It was the last topic of discussion. Uh, to, to continue this message of repentance. And this was right after he was about to ascend back into heaven. It's right before he was going to give the great commission that really has stimulated this whole talk on discipleship. And he, Jesus, is expecting this message of repentance to continue to be preached. Repentance. Now, we don't, um, as a Bible church, we don't talk a lot about repentance. In other words, we don't uh, call people to repentance on a regular basis in, in our services, do we? I, I don't. I don't remember Ted, you know, standing up and you know, call repent, you know, come forward, repent. We we just don't do that. But should we? Should we be calling one another to repentance, both for salvation, but also to to our daily lives? Repent. What does this have to do with us? And this is why I struggled with this, because if you go back and you read, so much of what is written on this topic has to do with salvation and, and getting your life right with God. There are books written on it. You know, one of the best ones I, I ran across was actually, it's a Puritan work, but it's called The Doctrine of Repentance. Um, you'd have to read this thing eight times to even get a glimpse of what this guy's talking about. I mean, the Puritans, I don't know what they were smoking, but... They were on a different plane mentally. I mean, I read this thing and I'm just, what did he say? And I go back and I read it again. I'm still not sure what he said, but it's deep. But it's, there's a lot written on the topic, but it's hard to find, okay, tell me what I do. What do I do with this as a Christian? Am I supposed to repent or am I done with that? And so that's where I really battled with this thing as I put the lesson together and as I was still putting it together. Well, what is it? What is repentance? Let's, let's do a quick definition. Here's what the Greeks, if you go back to the Greeks, which is what the New Testament is written in, and then it's been translated, of course, into English, and we've got to go back to that because we tend to, everything we define from our perspective is from an English, Western uh, mindset. And so 
we have our idea of repentance. But what what did the Greeks who kind of set this up? What was their definition? In classical Greek, the word repent is metanoia. Okay, I'm probably butchering that, but I don't think anybody in here knows Greek, so I don't care. It meant to change one's mind about someone or something, to change your mind. Okay, that's every time if you go back and read Greek literature. That's if they used the word repent, which they used a lot. It just had had nothing to do with salvation. It had nothing to do with anything other than I just changed my mind. I thought this way. Now I think this way. So that's that's what they meant with the word. So what does it mean in the New Testament? Basically the same thing. It means to change your mind, to repent. But doesn't it have it has this real kind of heavy definition for us as Christians? I. You guys know this. I grew up Southern Baptist, and repent has a whole lot more heavy meaning to me than it probably does to some of you guys in the room. It's got baggage with it. But if you go back in the New Testament, it it means the same thing that it just meant when any other Greek-speaking person used it. It meant two things. It has two parts. The second part of it, noeo, it means refers to the mind and its thoughts, perceptions, dispositions, and purposes. It's the mind. It's what you think. It's the thoughts, it's the, the purposes of your mind, what you've determined you're going to do with your day, your life, your thoughts, your habits. So it's the mind. The prefix of it means movement or change. So again, what does it mean? Basically, I'm going to change the way I think. I'm going to change my mind about something or someone. So here's the, the basic meaning is to experience a change of your perceptions, your dispositions, and your purposes. Now, that's really important for us to understand as we go into this. And I'll give you an example. Um, I changed my mind on this lesson. You know, 4 o'clock yesterday, as I was wrapping it up, I thought I was done. And there's a kind of pleasure with, "Ah, I'm done, and I can move on. But then about 5 o'clock... I looked at it and I thought, no, I'm not done. I got more to do. This is not what I need to share. And I had a complete change of mind and I hated it because it meant I had to start all over again. I don't like to start all over again. But I had a change of mind. I had a change of perspective. As I looked at the completed work, my mind changed about the content. Here's another example. My... um, some of you guys know that I love, I love the blues. Now, don't hold that against me. Um, I love the blues. And a number of years ago when I was working for an ad agency in Dallas, um, one of the guys I worked with, um, he played in a blues band. And he would bring his guitar to work, and he would play in his office at lunch. And I would hear him, and I'd go in there because I like the blues. And he goes, you, you need to learn how to play the blues. And I said, well, first of all, I don't know how to play the guitar. And he goes, well, why don't you play the harmonica? I said, I don't know how to play the harmonica. Said, Anybody can play the harmonica. So... I bought a harmonica, and he taught me how to play the harmonica. So I play the blues harmonica, and I, I think I'm pretty good. Until, that was my perception. Until last night, my kids, for, my, for Christmas, all of my kids chipped in, and they bought me tickets to go see B.B. King last night. Now, if you know who B.B. King is, he's the king of blues. He's 81 years old. He sits down when he plays, but it really doesn't matter. Because the guy's unbelievable. Guess what happened last night as I heard him play? My perception of my ability completely changed. Because this guy is just, 
he's forgotten more about blues than I will ever know. I mean, he's just, he's unbelievable. He's 81 years old, and he can still play circles around people half his age. My perception changed. I don't know that I will ever pick up a harmonica again. He doesn't even play the harmonica, but it doesn't matter. The guys that were in his band, you know, just you sit there and go, how can anybody be this good? My perception changed. My idea of my skills changed. My idea of what I know about music changed. Um, that's really what this word means as we look at it. It's a change of mind. And we're going we're to look at what that means to, to you and I as Christians. John Piper, in his book, What Jesus Demands from the World, here's what he says. Repentance is a call for a radical inward change toward God and man. Keep that in mind. It's toward God, but it's also toward man. Repentance is an internal change of mind and heart rather than mere sorrow for sin or mere improvement of behavior. Remember, when we did the Disciple series, one of the things we talked about, and we're going to continue to talk about it, is that this is not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. You know, God is not really interested in in how well you can stop doing something or start doing something. Because bottom line is, if it's not coming from here, you're not going to stop it for very long and you're not going to start it for very long. You don't have what it takes to do it. It's got to come from your heart. So it's heart transformation. It's a radical inward change towards God, but also towards man. Now, where where does push come to shove for you and I? I could really be a great Christian if no one else existed. Really. Think about that. If you didn't have a wife, if you didn't have kids, if you didn't have people you had to meet, if you didn't have employees, if you didn't have a boss, if you didn't have neighbors, if you didn't... This would be pretty easy. Because I can pretty much get along with God. I have to. It's you guys that are the problem. It's people. I've often said I would love, when I was in advertising, I always say advertising would be a wonderful career if it weren't for clients and other people. Now I'm saying that about church work. Church work would be wonderful if it weren't for people because people have problems. But this is a radical inward change towards God, but it's also towards men, other men. So really what we're going to talk about this morning is a change in our perspective. Repentance requires a whole new point of view, a whole new point of view. And this is probably, you know, some of you guys are going to probably be rubbed the wrong way in terms of how this looks at repentance. But I I really hope you'll bear with me as we as we look at this, because it's one of the things that God seems to be doing in my life right now is he, he keeps bringing me back to this issue of, Ken, you've got to change the way you look at life, the way you look at sin, the way you look at me, the way you look at your kids, the way you look at other people. You've got to change your whole point of view. Because as a human being, my point of view is totally skewed. It's from here out. It's, but it's mainly focused on me. It's what's in it for me? What are you doing to me? How can you make me happy? It's, it's a totally skewed point of view. And my point of view has radically got to change. It's learning to look at things God's way. You know, the, the first week we were supposed to start, which was not last week, but the week before when it snowed, and some of us who really love Jesus showed up, we, 
Sorry, I just had to do that. The guys who showed up paid me to say that. But as I told them, there weren't enough of them for me to teach the lesson. I wasn't going to waste it on them. So what we talked about was Matthew chapter 6, and I'm not going to get into it this morning, but there's a passage in there in Matthew chapter 6 that talks about if your eye is clear. If your eye is clear, and that word means single, your body will be full of light. And what jumped out at me in looking at that and studying it is that when I can begin to see things clearly, reality as God sees reality, my body will suddenly be full of light. I will be illuminated inside by His holiness, His righteousness, because I'm seeing truth for the first time. I'm seeing truth about me, which I don't typically like to see. I'm seeing truth about you. I'm seeing truth about the world. I'm seeing truth about all the stuff around me. We live in what is the equivalent in my mind of Main Street Disney World. Man, it looks great. It looks appealing. Those stores look so real. It looks like a real street. It's where I'd like to live, but it is not real. It's a facade. It's fake. And so much of what we live with is, is fake. It's the world's attempt to get us to buy into this is all there is. There's, no, there's nothing else out there, so grab all the gusto you can get. But that is a warped perspective. That is viewing reality with faulty vision. So what I want to talk about right now is that we need to look, look from God's perspective if we really want to live. Look and live. Flip over to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. This is going to be kind of an obscure passage to uh, some of you. And it may be a passage that you, you've struggled with. Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 9. Actually, we're going to start in verse 8, I believe. And here's, here's the scenario. People of Israel are out in the wilderness. Well, here, let's read it first, and then we'll, we'll build up the case. Starting in verse 8. Actually, back all the way up to verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the Lake of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Reoccurring theme, right? People of Israel, impatient. The people spoke against God and Moses. Reoccurring theme. Speak out against God and his leader. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, which is not really true, because they've had manna and they've had quail and they've had water from a rock. And we loathe this miserable food. Well, where'd that food come from? The hand of God. We're just kind of sick of it. You ever gotten sick of your lot in life? I hate my job. I hate this situation. I hate this. I... Well, where'd it come from? The hand of God. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Thank goodness he hasn't done that to me yet. He did send a dead rat in my attic this week. Um, that was fun. Finding it was a, you know, it was a chore. I'm up in the attic with a stick going through the blown-in insulation. I could smell it. I just couldn't find it. Then I found it. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people have a change of heart. 
They come to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard. It came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, when I was a kid, I struggled with this passage because it sounds really like idolatry to me. You know, what's the difference between that and a golden calf? Well, there's a point here. It's not idolatry. But what's going on? And why in the world am I talking about this with repentance? Well, I have method in my madness. The people had been complaining again, right? They'd done it. For years, all the time they'd been in the wilderness, they were complaining about the lack of food and water. They complained about God's provision. We don't like the food. We hate the water. We hate this. We hate that. We hate your leader. We hate all they didn't say, but they were inferring is that we hate you. We wish we were back in Egypt. They had really short memories. So what does God do? He sends these fiery serpents. Many got bitten. Many died. Basic story. And it says, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. He lived. Now, keep in mind, when he did what? When he looked. When he looked at the bronze serpent. So here's the scene. Now, this is, this is conjecture on my part, okay? Bear with me. This is ministerially speaking. Ted does it, so I'm going to do it. Imagine the scene. You've got poisonous snakes everywhere. They're biting everybody that walks by. Your kid, your, your mother-in-law, which is probably not that bad. But they're biting everybody. Poisonous snakes. Many people are already dead. They're dying so fast they can't bury them quick enough. Others are in the midst of dying. And I've never been bitten by a poisonous snake, but I don't think it'd be fun. Okay? This is a painful way to die. Then somebody yells out in the midst of all the chaos. Somebody says, we've got to do something. We gotta stop this. We need to come up with a solution. We gotta have a plan. We gotta save ourselves. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, what do we do? We, I agree, we gotta stop this. And so they start coming up with plans. Here's some of the solutions. This is conjecture. It's not in this passage. But I know how people think. And I guarantee this happened. Somebody, some people are running around frantically. They're just willy-nilly running around. And they think this is gonna save them. Maybe if we run fast enough, it'll get all the poison out of our system. And they run around and they drop over dead. Didn't work. Others just stare at their wounds and just, they're in a state of panic. And they just stare at their wounds and they stare at their wounds and they keel over dead. They do nothing. Then some convince themselves they haven't been bitten. Well, I didn't really, this isn't, it's not that bad. I didn't get bit. And they just ignore it. Same fate. They drop over dead. Others spread the rumors that the snakes aren't poisonous. Even though there's dead bodies everywhere, Oh, guys, come on, calm down. They're not really poisonous. They drop over dead. Then one person attempts that he's, he's the entrepreneur in the group, and he decides to sell antitoxin, you know, snake oil, which actually makes it worse, and he ends up dead. So here's all these solutions. I guarantee somebody was trying to do something to make this stop. Somebody's out there with a hoe or a rake trying to kill all the snakes. Somebody's doing something. Did any of it work? No, they could not stop this because it was from God. So Moses comes up with a solution. Actually, it was God's solution. And it's look at the snake on the pole and live. Now, if you were an Israelite and Moses comes to you and says that to you, what do you say? 
You have absolutely lost your mind. Look at the bronze serpent on the pole and live. You remember what we did when we bowed down to the golden calf? You think we're going to do that, Moses? This sounded so idiotic. It sounded so stupid. It sounded so off the wall. I'd rather go run around in circles hoping to get the blood out of the poison out of my blood than do this. It made no sense. But if you don't do it, you're going to die, Moses says. If you don't do it, you're going to die. You've got to look at the snake in the pole and you will live. Don't do anything else but what? Look. Don't do anything else. And what does it say in John 3, 14 and 15? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What's the point? What's the point? So, what did that verse say? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Just like they needed to get their eyes off the snakes and start looking at that serpent. And that serpent represented what? It represented their sin. Their sin was being put up in display for them, and they needed to look at it. And when they looked at that, what did it remind them of? What got them bit in the first place? They're complaining. They're bickering. Their animosity towards Moses as their leader. And ultimately, their animosity towards God for getting them in the wilderness to begin with. Every time they looked there, it was a reminder of their sin. But if they didn't look at that, if they refused to look at the solution, they were going to die. They were going to die. So look to the sun. We see in John chapter, chapter 4 there. Look to the sun. Chapter 3. Here's the, here's the bottom line for me. We have all been bitten by sin, right? There's not a guy in the room who isn't suffering from some sin bite. For some of us, it's worse than others. And that poison runs through our veins. I don't care how righteous you appear. I don't care how righteous you act. Sin is alive and well in every man's life in this room. And what's the ultimate end of sin? Death. Now, as a believer, I don't have to fear eternal death. I do have to deal with physical death. But I also have to deal, when I have sin in my life, separation from God, even as a believer. It puts a wall up between he and I. It, it, it keeps my prayers from being answered. It keeps the Holy Spirit from being able to communicate with me because I stifle him in my life. It's a reality. Sin always leads to death. And here's the bottom line. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself in terms of getting to heaven. And I can't deal with the sin in my life as a believer by myself. I have tried it, and you have tried it, and I try changing my behavior, and I'm going to be more patient this morning, and it lasts about 10 seconds till I get in the car and somebody pulls in front of me or until my kids wake up. <laughs> you cannot save yourself from the sin in your life. You cannot save yourself and get to heaven. You cannot save yourself from the effects of sin in your life today. There's only one solution, one solution. You've got to quit looking at your sin, and you've got to 
Quit looking at your solutions. You know, I really do believe these people were looking for their own set of solutions. They had Somebody was going to stop this. I'm not getting bit. And they were probably throwing loved ones out there. You, you get bit first. You know, you, you go deal with the snakes. I'm going to stay in here. They were coming up with solutions. You've got to quit looking at your sin. And, guys, we obsess with our sin. And we beat ourselves up. My, my 25-year-old son, he and I have had this conversation on more than one occasion. He finds comfort in obsessing in his sin. Now, where did he get that from? He got it from me. Because there's a certain perverse comfort in obsessing with your sin and going, oh, what a wretch I am. What, oh, I just can't get it. Oh, Lord, I'm just so sorry. And we apologize and we confess and we just we wallow in our sin. And there's some kind of a perverse, like it's like going to confession. You know, when I, when I grew up in New York, all of my friends were Catholic and they always went to confession. And they would come back and they had this kind of, whew, got that off my chest. And I always wanted to be able to do that. Because they'd come back and they thought it was all done. I'm forgiven. And I never did really experience that. But we obsess with our sin, and we've got to quit looking at our sin. We've got to quit looking at our own solutions. And we've got to quit looking to someone or something else to save us. There's only one solution. What is it? John 6:40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Look to the Son. It's a change of mind. It's a change of perspective. It's a change in the way you look at your life. Jesus said this, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You want to do the work of God? Believe in the Son of God. And the more I've looked up the word repent, it's always tied to belief. Believing. It's, it's, a, it's a synonym, in a way, for believing. To repent is to, yeah, it's to turn away from this, to turn to that. But the emphasis is not what you're turning away from, it's what you're turning to. That's, that's the emphasis. You know, we want to talk about, you know, look what I've left behind for you, God. I don't do drugs anymore. I, I don't sleep around anymore. I just cheat on my income tax now. You know, I, I, I lie at work, right? You know. Whatever, we want to brag about what we've turned away from instead of glorying in what we're turning to. You see the difference? The emphasis for me in repentance is not on the sin we've left behind. It's the Savior we're looking towards. Huge difference. Huge difference. You've heard this term, turn and burn, turn or burn. Um, Again, we don't preach this as a church. We don't, you know, stand up in the pulpit and turn or burn. We don't scare people into the kingdom, and I fully agree with that. But the truth is, the scriptures are pretty clear that if you don't want to turn to the Savior for salvation, look at what it says, Luke chapter 13, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Matthew 4:17. from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The inference there is the kingdom of heaven is near, and if you don't turn, guess what? You're not in it. Matthew 3, 2, this is the Phillips translation, which I love. You must change your hearts and minds for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Change your hearts and your minds. You've got to change your perspective. Change the way you look. You can't save yourself. The kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. This is what he was saying to these people when he came. Hey, guys, the kingdom has arrived, and it is not what you were expecting. Remember, what did the disciples want? They wanted him to turn the tables on the Romans. They wanted him to set up his kingdom on earth. They wanted to sit in his right hand and his left hand. They argued about it. They got their mother involved in it. 
And he's going, guys, that is not what's going to happen. That is not the kingdom I'm bringing. You've got to change your minds about what's coming down here. What's happening around you? Mark 6, 12, they went out and preached that people should turn away from their sins. Again, don't dwell on what you're leaving behind. It's what you're turning towards. It's the solution. It's the hope that you have. We got two ways, two ways, guys, when it comes to looking. The way we need to look, which is to look towards Jesus, and we need to repent and turn and change our mind about him, it's going to make sense if we look long enough. In other words, if it didn't take long for those people, if they would just look at that serpent, what would happen? Jesus said, or God said, you will be healed. As soon as they looked, they were healed. And you know, it doesn't say it, but I guarantee some of those people got bit again. And what did they have to do? They had to go look again. It, the longer you look, it started to make sense. Hey, this works. You know what we do? We glance. We kind of, yeah, there's Jesus. Yeah, okay. And we don't look very long because we're always looking back at our sin. Out of regret or because it's attractive. And so we kind of look, yeah, okay, I see you up there, but I'm not really interested. I'm not going to look very long. The longer you look, the more it makes sense that it's the right solution. It will create a desire as we look to move in that direction. I guarantee if I was an Israelite and I'd been bitten by a poisonous snake and that poison started running through my veins and I looked at that snake on the pole and suddenly I'm healed, I am fixated on that pole. I'm not looking at anything else. At least I think that's the way I would do it. But is that the way I do it in my life? No, I'm always looking away. But the longer you look, it will create a desire to keep looking because that's the solution. And all this stuff over here, this is fake. This is not the real thing. And that will lead to something else. That will lead to something greater. That will lead to life. Well, you've got a choice. You can choose man's way. And here's man's way. We're just going to look at a couple of passages. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You ever had an idea that you thought was great? Man, this is the way to do it. And it led to death, either the death of a dream, the death of your business, the death of your finances, the death of your marriage. But, man, it was a great idea when you came up with it. It seems right. That's man's way. That's the world's way. Our way or the world's way will, will not work. It will not work. I am not a prognosticator. I'm not a prophet. But I'm telling you, your way and my way and the world's way will never work. Looking at things from my perspective, from your perspective, makes sense most of the time. It just sounds good. And you do the homework and it looks right and it sounds right. And you seek the counsel of all these people and it's just everybody agrees. Yeah, that's what you should do. But it will never work. It, it will always lead to destruction. There is a way that seems right to a man. I love this. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. Remember, it sounds right to me. It feels good. sounds good. He's dragged away and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Your desire, your will, your way, apart from looking to the Son, will never deliver the goods. It only delivers one thing, disappointment and death. Ezekiel chapter 18, this is God speaking. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? I would. 
I were God, I'd kind of have a, I'd have fun with that. But what does he say? I don't take pleasure in that. Rather, I am, am I not pleased when they turn away from their ways and live because he considers all the offenses he committed and turns away from them? He will surely live. He will not die. Repent. Turn away. But turn away to what? To him. Turn to God. Turn to Christ. Turn away from your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? You know, the sad thing for these people is they only had the law. We have Christ. We have the Son that we can look to, and he is our sin crucified, done away with. I don't have to dwell on this anymore. I don't have to rid myself of anything. He's already done it. Huge difference, huge difference. Now, here's the second part I want you to discuss just for the next few minutes. Go back, look at Proverbs 14, 12 again. Somebody read it. And here's what I want you to talk about. What are some ways, and guys, please, please be honest. What are some ways that seem right to you, but God might want you to change your mind? Man, it sounds good. It sounds right. What are some ways that we tend to look at things from a worldly perspective and how do they end up in death? And if you can share something personal, share it. Get real around the tables. And I'll come back in just a minute. We can choose man's way, or we can choose to see things God's way. And we'll close with this. Basically, guys, repenting is seeing things from God's perspective. It's looking at your life. It's looking at sin. It's looking at God. It's looking at Christ. It's, it's seeing things from his perspective. It's viewing your life from his vantage point. And that's where the scriptures come in so handy because it shows us life from his vantage point, not your vantage point, not what you think is happening. I know there's guys in this room who are going through some pretty difficult times right now, and from your vantage point, it all looks so bleak and it all looks so hopeless. Guess what? It is not hopeless from his vantage point. He knows what's going on. You've got to change the way you see, the way you think, the way you view. It's looking at sin from his point of view. Looking at sin from his... He hates sin. We need to learn to hate sin in our lives. We need to learn to despise it and, and look at him and realize that, man, he's on that cross because of my sin. Why in the world would I want to crucify him again by continuing to sin? It's changing the way we look at life. It's to change your mind, to change your mind about God and who he is, to change your mind about who you are, that you're not who you think you are. You're not as holy as you think you are. You're not as righteous. You're not as good as you think you are. You're not as bad as you think you are. You're not as sinful as you think you are, because when he looks at you, he sees Christ. It's a different perspective, and we've got to change the way we look at things. I've given you several passages there in your notes, but I just want to close with this one. And it's from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside, that means cast off like an old dirty garment. Let's cast off every encumbrance. That's a big word that means burden. 
cast it off. Get rid of the burdens, the things that are weighing you down. And the sin which so easily entangles you, surrounds you, prevents you from running, prevents you from doing what you're supposed to be doing. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But here's the key. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on him. Repent. Turn. Man, start looking at him and realize what he's done for you and what he wants to do in you and through you. That's what this is all about. That is why you are here. Not here this morning, but it's why you're here on this earth. He wants to glorify the Father through you. But you've got to look at him and quit looking at the world and quit looking at their solutions and quit looking at the stuff that is all a facade. It will never deliver. Father, we come to you this morning, and I thank you for these men. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that we can turn. We can change the way we think. We can change our mind about who we are and our sin. And it's not just a mistake. It's not just something we screwed up on. It is a sin and an affront and an assault on a holy God. And it is crucifying Christ all over again every time we sin. Because he died for our sins once and for all. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him, fixed on the solution, not our sin. Father, forgive us for obsessing with our sin and concentrating so much on our sin that we forget about the Savior. Help us to keep our eyes focused on the Savior, fixing our eyes on him, the author of our faith and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. I cannot live this life, Father, without him. Forgive me for trying. Forgive me for trying to come up with my own solution to the fiery serpents in my life. Either running from them, trying to stomp them out, poison them out, forgetting about them, ignoring them. Help me to keep my eyes fixed on the one and the only solution to the power of sin in my life, the Savior. Father, empower us. Motivate us, encourage us, move us, shake us, mold us, make us, change us, radically prune us. Do what you need to do to make every man in this room a man after your own heart. Father, you want to change our, our homes. You want to change our lives. You want to change this church. You want to change this city. You want to change this world. You want to do it through us. And that blows me away. Why in the world you wouldn't want to do anything through me? But it's not me. It's the power of Christ within me. And I don't get the glory you do. So, Father, do what you're going to do. And I'm going to thank you for the changes that are going to take place in the lives of the men in this room as we turn to you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our coming King. Amen. Guys, pick up a lesson, and we're going to talk about what it means to believe in Christ.